All right. Well, hey, good morning, Calvary Church. Uh, it is great to see you guys. Good to be here. If you've dropped in over the past three weeks, you're like, who in the world is this maniac on stage? Uh, well, my name is Peter and had the privilege, right, of serving for many years here at Calvary Church uh, on the pastoral team and excited to be with all of you and us together through the end of August as we plow through and continue and wrap up the book of Revelation. So uh, it's great to be with you guys. As many of you know, I was away for three weeks, but back. Um, and so excited about being here, worshiping here, <clears throat> getting, continuing to press into Revelation, what God has. And what we talk about a lot here at Calvary, right, is what we have together desired and striven, stroven, been striving to do. I'm not an English teacher, so I don't really. Uh, <clears throat> what we've kind of, man, linked arms and wanted to do was to really press into being a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. Be a body of disciples who do more than sit on the blue chairs and drink adequate free coffee, but then also personally and collectively reach out and impact other people with God's love and truth. And we wrap a lot of what we do here in events and opportunities around that vision. And so there's some things in your bulletin that I just want to call attention to as we continue to drive towards those things and think about being a body. A few different ways in the next few weeks for you to be part of a body and to be known, to connect with others, to build some relationships. Uh, there's a movie night coming up. Great opportunity. I know you're like looking for something really profound. Movie night though. Opportunity come. It's in your bulletin August uh, 11th and great chance uh, for us to be together as families and as a church, but also a great chance to reach out. And so would love for you to come to meet some other families and some other people. And if there's people in your neighborhood, it's a great chance for you to personally reach and impact other people by giving them a taste of our church and an opportunity here. Then on uh, the 13th of August, there's a prayer and a worship night and an amazing opportunity outside the regular schedule of a Sunday morning to gather together as a body and just to pause and just to unite as disciples around the worship of Jesus, which we did uh, so richly this morning, the time together. So that's coming up. And then as you think about, hey, as the body, as Calvary Church, as, man, you guys are entering a new season, our family's entering a new season, and we think about what is Calvary as a body and as a church and a group look like in the future, there's a way for you to speak into that. You've probably heard from a lot of other folks about a vision survey, a great way to get your input and insights into the church. And uh, I think that concludes today, if I remember correctly. So if you haven't had a chance to wrap that up, wrap that up. And then we've had an amazing opportunity for our kids to go to Philly and once again to, as a group, try to reach and impact other people on the Philly project. And so thanks to you who prayed for that. Thanks to you who ate a lot of Krispy Kreme donuts to support that work. And we're really excited in the coming weeks to hear just how God works through them and worked in their own lives as they, together as a group, had the opportunity to impact other people with God's love and truth. So we, we print the bulletin because we want to engage you, and we want you to know what's going on. And so, again, it's not just because we want to kill trees. So we hope you grab it. Uh, <clears throat> bring a Bible, grab a bulletin, and great ways for you to know what's going on here at Calvary Church. So with that said, let me pray. And then we're going to press into uh, Revelation and what God has for us this morning. Father, thanks for the chance to gather together, and thanks for the opportunity to pause in our week and to have a rhythm where we stop and we 
unite with other people, many of whom share the same beliefs as us. And we try to avoid distractions and we just come into a group with other people and together we focus on you. And thank you, Father, for the words of those songs that affirm your worth and your goodness and how you really are worthy of it all. Thanks for the opportunity we've had to, through singing together, uh, lay aside our own efforts to promote ourselves, but affirm that uh, it's not about us, but it's all about what we are in Christ and what Christ does through us. Thanks for the opportunity to come to your word, Father, and <clears throat> whoever is up here preaching has no power. We're grateful for the opportunity to present your truth, but the Holy Spirit's the one that takes the truths of your revealed word and presses it into what we're facing and what we need to know about you. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you will help us avoid distractions. I, you know, Father, why every single person is in this room, and you know what each of us are going through. And in your sovereignty, you knew that we would be here and that this would be the text for today. And so I pray that once again, God, you'll work through your word in your people for the glory of our King Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, every day... Uh, you and I make decisions, right? Decisions. Think about all the decisions that you've already made this morning. You've made a decision about whether to come to church or not. You've made a decision about whether to have a cup of coffee, whether to stop for coffee, whether to drink Calvary's coffee, uh, whether to make coffee at the house. You made a decision about what to wear so that you'd look so lovely and so radiant as you sit here this morning. You made a decision when you came in the room about where to sit. And maybe some of you were so frustrated because there's somebody sitting in the seat in which you've sat for 47 years. <clears throat> and all you've been talking, thinking about for the past, you know, however many minutes we've been singing is, I can't believe that person's sitting in my seat, right? And you've been forced to make a decision about where to sit this morning because somebody has made that decision, made you make that decision. Every day we make decisions. This morning you've already made countless number of decisions and over the course of our lives, some of the decisions that we make are trivial. Like, do we want to top off our coffee? Like, who really cares, right? But we make decisions on that. And sometimes the decisions we make are really, really significant when something unexpected comes into our lives and we have to decide how to respond when we reach a crossroads and there's a fork in the road that divides and we have to decide what path to take. Sometimes the decisions we make in life are trivial and sometimes the decisions we make in life have huge impact and shape the course of what happens. And one huge decision <clears throat> that everybody in this room this morning has to make, something we've all have to decide about, and in many ways probably already have decided about, is this hugely important question of, is there a God? Is there a God? At some point in our lives, and probably by now, every single one of us has in our own hearts decided, I think there is a God, or I don't think there's a God. And then the second uh, thing that comes along with that for people who think that there is a God is this question of, okay, well, what is that God like? What is that God like? If, if you're sitting here this morning and if you've made a decision that, okay, I think there's a God, then you've also made a second decision that follows that. And the second decision is, well, what is that God like? Well, what's his personality? What's his characteristics? What does he do? And when people think about that question, they kind of come at it from a few different angles. One way that some people and maybe some of us kind of come up with this idea of what God is like is we think about 
the nicest, kindest person that we know. You think about your grandpa, if he was a nice person. And then you think about the nicest, kindest person that you know, and what you do is you think about the nicest, most wonderful version of that person, and that may be kind of what shapes your view of God, right? Well, I think there's a God, and man, God's really nice, so this person's really nice, but God's even nicer than him, so God's the nicest version of this person. Maybe what some of us do is we don't look to another person, but when we think about what God is like, we project our own traits onto him. And we have thoughts about the way things should be in the world. We have thoughts about what we would do if we were God, and we project that onto our view of God, and we shape God not as he is, but as we would be if we were God. And neither of those subjective ways is the ways that as Christians we have the opportunity to think about God, because we don't have to think about the nicest person we know. We don't think about God as just what we would be, what you and I together, if you're a Christian this morning, is, man, we think that there is a place we can turn to understand and to know who God is. And that's the Bible, an objective place to turn that we don't have to guess about God. We don't have to shape God the way we would. We can come and we can learn about God. And this book doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God, but this book does tell us everything that God thinks we need to know about him. And we've been in the book for the past few months, right? And, and we've been studying the book of Revelation. And throughout the 20 plus 21 and a half chapters that we've been through already in almost a year, we have repeatedly every Sunday in all sorts of different ways seen God revealing a little bit about who he is and about what he's like. We've seen what's important to God. We've seen how God thinks about his people. We've seen how God thinks about injustice. We've seen how God thinks about a variety of things. We've seen who God is and what he's like. And in today's text, we're going to see, as we're going to see some more, man, man, truth kind of implied and woven through the text about the characteristics of God. The text this morning is going to be Revelation 21, verses 9 through 27. And the next chapter is Revelation 22. And we are so close to getting through the book of Revelation. I don't know if that excites you, but I'm like, man, this, we've actually preached through the book of Revelation. So, uh, well, not yet. So that's exciting. And this week, what we're going to look at is going to kind of be a different angle and perspective of what was studied last week. And I'm sure grateful for Zach and Matt and John who have preached the past few weeks in the book of Revelation. And this week's text is kind of a different angle or a different viewpoint or some different details of what you worked through uh, last week. I have, as you know, and you won't always have to hear about this, right? Because, you know, you won't always have to hear my illustrations. I have a 2001 Toyota 4Runner with an amazing bumper because the people of Calvary Church are kind. Um, and it has new air conditioner because apparently it's not good to sniff Freon every day in your car, my mechanic tells me. I don't know. But I have a 2001 Toyota 4Runner. Now, I've borrowed people's cars, I've rented newer cars, and I get in that car and I'm very perplexed because there's a TV screen in front of me, right? And, and my 2001 Toyota 4Runner doesn't have a TV screen. And so, in my 2001 Toyota 4Runner, we back up the way that God created people to back up. <clears throat> I'm just saying, 
there's going to be generations that one day that computer chip's going to blow up and they will not be able to back into a parking space. In my 2000, this is inspired truth, by the way, right? We back up the way you're supposed to back up. You know what we do? We look, we have something, we have something called a mirror, okay? The, the thing on the side of the car is not just to hit pedestrians when you're mad at them in Manhattan, Okay. And so what we do is we look in that mirror, we look in that mirror, we look in that mirror, and we back up using mirrors. Have you ever heard of such a creation? Now, when I'm backing up using a mirror, I can see what's behind me, right? I have a certain vantage point from those mirrors that give me a certain vantage point. Now, when people who are not good drivers are in their fancy cars using the TV screen to back up. You also see what's behind you, but it's just two different vantage points, and each vantage point is looking at the same thing. You're just coming at it from different perspectives, and from different perspectives, you see different things in it. And that's what today's text is, right? Today's text was, last week you were kind of backing up using mirrors, and you saw it a certain way, and this week it's as if you're going to back up using the TV screen, and you're going to see more details details and different details and different truths about what was discussed last week. Last week, here was the verse. Um, you know, here, here's kind of how the text uh, started off and what you spent some time talking about. Revelation 21, 2. It was this idea of this new Jerusalem. And here's what the text said in the passage you were in last week. <gasps> That's what's going to happen to your cameras in your car. <clears throat> And you are going to be stuck in Costco parking lot with no clue what to do. And it won't be my fault because I'm your pastor and I've tried to tell you to use your mirrors. Last week, what happened with the text that you were in, it was this verse, was one of the key verses. It talked about, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, right? This New Jerusalem and uh, you know, that's a sermon that could be spent weeks in unpacking this, and there's all sorts of thoughts that you may have gotten into about, well, is this an actual city? Is it a metaphor for the people of God? Is it actually combined both of those ideas, right? Which I would say seems to be what it is, right? These truths about the people of God who are in the city of God, but really it's pointing to what those people are experiencing. And in those details, right, you unpack things. And today's text is going to follow up on that in a new and a different way. And so let's jump into what we're going to see today and see this different angle and this different depth and this different understanding about the new Jerusalem. So Revelation 21, starting in verse 9, it says this, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And um, again, that's why some people say, well, the bride is being referred to as the new Jerusalem. So this isn't actually a literal city. It's actually the bride of Christ. But other things seem to suggest it could be a city. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven. Now, we're going to unpack that in a little bit. But this person who in this part of the text, in this angle, is showing this city to John is really important. The person who's showing this vision to John is one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Now, we've seen somebody who is described the same way earlier in our study of Revelation. And earlier in our study of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, here is what we saw. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls 
And in this part, a few chapters earlier, this is what this angel did. Come and said, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, you may not remember all that. You may not have been here. But this angel, three or four chapters ago, was showing John this description of what's going to happen to Babylon. And if you remember Babylon, we unpacked as this metaphor for pretty much any anti-God worldview. So, so there's this city that's described as Babylon, and Babylon stands for, I'm going to do it my way, I'm not going to do it God's way, I'm going to have different values, I'm going to have different priorities, I'm going to have different interests and different things I press into. And then there was a whole piece about financially, right? I'm not going to have my money be God's way, I'm going to have it be my way. All of that, anything that is anti-God, we said is wrapped up in this whole idea of this city of Babylon in the book of Revelation metaphorically. And four chapters ago, this angel came and said, John, let me show you something. Let me talk to you about a city, and the city's Babylon symbolically, and let me tell you what happens to that city, and let me tell you what happens to that worldview, and let me tell you what happens to people who align themselves in that city, with that city, with that worldview. And now, a few chapters down the road, what this same angel likely, right, same description is saying is, hey, I want to show you another city. I want to show you another place that has a totally different philosophy from that. And I want to show you, and he's going to unpack the experience of the people who are living in this place. And I think it's really, really important that this same angel has now spent two different moments talking about two different cities. One metaphorical city that is a place that's opposed to God with people who are in alignment with that, and one place that does probably have some degree of metaphor and and, and symbolism talking about people who are aligned with God. We're getting to the end of the book, and there's two different cities and two different realities and two different pathways and two different kingdoms and two different worldviews that are now being contrasted as they have been. And I think what, what's being implied through this to the readers then and to the readers today is this, look, you're, you're going to live your life in one of those two cities. You're going to be aligned with one of those two cities. And at the end of the day, when all is said and done, no matter how much you can fool other people, no matter how much you can fool people next to you in the blue chairs, at the end of the day, you can't fool God, and you're going to be aligned with one of those two cities, and you're either going to be lined in your heart, in a city, in a place, in a worldview that's like, you know what? I can play the game really well, but I, man, I've lived my life doing it my way. Or you can be aligned as a person who's a citizen of the kingdom, of the city of God. And what determines the alignment is not, as you've heard us say repeatedly here at Calvary, it's not how nice you are. It's not how much you avoid cussing. It's not whether you put five bucks in the brown offering boxes. It's not if you help little old ladies across the street. Well, let's help some little old men across the street, all right? We're always helping little old ladies. The little old men need help across the street too. Which city you're in has nothing to do with how good of a person you are. Which city you're in has to do with how you've responded to Jesus and to his perfection instead of trying to be perfect yourself. His grace through your faith puts you in a city. And I think it's just being repeated for the readers and for us, like, look, you're, you're aligned with, you're living in, you're walking in one of those two places And I think the question that we at least have to pause before we get into more of the text is, which city are you in? Which city are you in? 
are you in the city of the kingdom of God, right? This new Jerusalem, that place, because you responded in faith to Jesus? Or have you not? And if you have, and if you're in that city, right, then the question is, okay, well, you're in the city, but man, which city does your life appear like you're living in? Which city do your choices appear like you're living in? There's an angel who's saying, look, man, there are two pathways that we've spent 21 chapters talking about. And they don't want to end the book without saying, man, at some point we've got to think about which one is our citizenship in. And then the remainder of chapter 21 talks about the blessings, the realities, the people who are in the city of God, the new Jerusalem, this place, what they experience, right? And within the story of what they experience, there's truths about their God who they've been following and what he's like. <clears throat> and so we're going to jump into that. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of just read three different verses that provide three different glimpses of this, and then we're going to pull it all together at the end, okay? So three different verses from the text, three different snapshots that we'll pull together um, at the end of this first piece. So first verse, right? And we now see some descriptions about this city. And so it says uh, this. And so he carried me away, verse 10, in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall, okay? Great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the name of the 12 tribes of the 12 sons of Israel were inscribed and on the east three gates on the north three gates on the south three great gates and on the west three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations right we, we see this first thing that this description of the city is this place that there's a wall around it and I just need to say it because anytime I say wall there's something in me that I just got to say it look revelation 21, 10 through 13, mentioning a wall, has nothing to do with political policies, okay? So we can have different policy thoughts about something, but we shouldn't use Revelation 21, 10 through 13, uh, because this was not inspired to tell people what political policy to have on something. And over the past years, people on either side of the aisle have picked out verses about walls that are so out of context. Don't be that person, okay? Had to say it, I feel much better now. But I say it because here's why I say it. Because I never want one of you to think, oh, he's trying to project something. I never want one of you to think like, oh, he's trying to send settled messages. The only message I'm sending you is what the text says, because that's the only message that this should be sent about, okay? So one of the things we see about this, this, this city, right, is it's enclosed in the wall. And then we skip down a few verses to 21.15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And then the next few verses, and you can read them today when you're home grilling your hot dogs, okay? It goes into all these specific measurements and describes these beautiful jewels. And then there's also, there are pages and pages and pages of commentaries when you read in the next few verses about like, measure the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and its width, height and equal, measure its wall, 144 cubits. There are all sorts of discussions about whether these are literal measurements, how much a stadia is. There's all sorts of discussions that if you use this measurement in the United States of America, it would be a city from Denver till, you know, Newark, New Jersey. There's 
surprisingly heated debate about is this a pyramid being described or a cube? And there's nothing wrong with engaging in those discussions and looking into them, but I don't necessarily know if the point of all that is this. I think the point is like, hey, this city is being measured and this city is grand and glorious and beautiful. And then there's one other verse uh, that we'll talk about, 22, 20 through 26. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. These three different <clears throat> verses that we've talked about kind of talk about three different things, right? They talk about walls. Walls. And in this culture, walls kind of had two different purposes. One purpose was that a city would have walls around it to protect the people inside of it. And there is this description for the readers of this who were going through so much persecution and so much turmoil for their faith that, look, one day, man, you're going to be protected. One day, nothing bad, nothing harmful is ever going to be able to impact you. But, but walls also have walls also have another purpose, right? What do these walls around us do? It's really bad to open an open question that have like 27 answers to it. I'll tell you what these walls do. You know what these walls do? They, in, they, they, they enclose us here together. These walls are the boundaries, and inside of these walls are the places where we are all together. Um, in my training, I was at different hotels, and one of them was kind of big. And um, man, on the weekends, that hotel was hopping. And this hotel had all sorts of different like banquet halls and different rooms, right? And if you walked into one banquet hall, it would be event number one. But then banquet hall number 27 it would be a different event with a different purpose. But the people in banquet hall one weren't in 27, 27 weren't in one. And that space, that conference room right, is, is the, the boundaries in which all the people who should be there were there all together, protected and together in the same place. It talks about those walls. We read about how it was being measured, and we mentioned this earlier in our study. The idea of measuring something shows ownership over something. It shows possession of something. It shows care for something. And then the third part we read about, right, with this verse where, and into this place the nations of the earth walk. The kings of the earth come. The honor of the nations. Into this place that's protected, into this place where people who are in the city of God are all gathered in one place together. Into this place and this people who God has ownership of and protection of and love for and care for. It's a place where there is incredible diversity. Where, where it's not just Christians from one particular culture, or one particular area, or one particular ethnicity or race. Man, it is every Christian from every place, from every space, from every color, background, culture, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, all gathered together in one place, 
protected, together, cared for, loved, diverse, but unified. Here's the observation. If that's the reality that God is driving us towards, then, then there's this first observation about God that we are moving towards. God's heart is for the unity and the fellowship of all his people. Heaven, right? I, I, and I'll use the phrase, man, new heavens, new earth, right? Our reality here on this earth with God, with each other, man, it, it's going to be a place where all of God's people feel like they belong. All of God's people feel like they belong because they do belong. And if you've ever had an experience or you've ever lived your life or you've ever had part of your story, for some reason be you feel like you don't belong, man, that's not the experience that's waiting for you in store. All people, all from all places, all Christians gathered together, God's heart that he's driving us towards is for the unity and the fellowship of all his people. And Calvary, man, in the years to come, that there's an opportunity for God's people to reflect God's heart. There's an opportunity for you as God's people to reflect God's heart in a culture, in a moment that is continuing to be so divided in so many ways. Man, wouldn't this be an amazing place if part of the story about Calvary Church was, hey, there was a unity and there was a fellowship and there was a diversity and there was a belonging that, that transcends what happens in our culture and can only be credited to the fact that we are united in Jesus and what he has done for every one of us. This is God's heart. And the question is, are we going to reflect God's heart in the days, in the months, in the years to come? Some reality about these gates that are around the city that have been measured show this other truth about God. We, we touched upon this, but let me re go back to verses 12 through 13. <clears throat> the city had great high wall, we talked about that, with 12 gates. And on the gates were 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Hey, have you ever been to a fancy house, right? Drive through Southport. Uh, and man, on the gates of some of those houses on Southport, those little pushy things that you can't see through the gate if you don't have the code and they're never going to let you in there, right? Sometimes they'll be inscribed a word, right? Like, like Pleasant Hill or Ocean Enclave, okay? I don't know. Or I'm rich. Who knows what's, who knows what's inscribed there? But, but, but they inscribe things on those gates because they want to convey something. And there's no accident that if when, right, whether actually or metaphorically, you were to look at these gates one day that you'd be cruising in there, there'll be no bar to keep you out. But man, you'll pass by these and they'll say the 12 tribes of Israel. Why do you think that it's significant that the 12 tribes of Israel are written there? Here's why. Because in this moment, what God is helping us remember and know us is that, you know what? His plan to save all people began with the Jewish people. If you are not a person of Jewish heritage, man, and you are a Christian, that, that's because that thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, God had a plan with the Jewish person and, and the Jews, and we are benefiting from his promises to them. 
Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, says this. To Abraham, right? This was one of the first clearest ways that God said, hey, there is a mess in this world because of sin, but I'm going to lay out the rescue plan. He tells Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him who dishonors you will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When these words were written, everything was not blessed, everything was cursed. And it was a mess and there was chaos and there was dysfunction and people couldn't fix it. And God said, okay, Abraham, I'm going to start with you. And I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use your family, I'm going to use your people, I'm going to use the land from which your people live, and from some of you coming. And at the end of the day, Abraham, when that story is all run, man, all people of the earth are going to be blessed, Abraham, because of the Jewish people in the land, and from a Jew who is a king who comes from that land who's going to offer blessing to all people. And what this text is reminding us of is, look, the moment that's being described in that text, what's being reminded of is that, look, it happened. It happened. And a long time ago, God made a promise. And when we walk past those gates, whether literally or symbolically, but we're in this protected place together, possessed by God, in the new heaven and the earth, and when we're experiencing more blessing that we ever could imagine, right? When we are experiencing blessing because there's no more tears and no more sin and no more hurt, man, what we can realize in that moment is we're experiencing this because God kept his promises, Here's what we see infused through this. The second snapshot about God is that God keeps his promises in his time. Because that blessing piece, full blessing, we're still not experiencing that. We're not. There's amazing, beautiful things in life that happens to us in this moment that we should celebrate. But there's also things that happen to us that aren't fair, aren't right, aren't the way that God wants us because it's an already not yet We have not yet fully experienced King Jesus fully reigning, and we've not yet fully experienced the blessings, but one day we will if we're Christians because God keeps his promises in his time. Now, if you've been with us for the past 10 or 11 months, we've said this a lot. (laughs) There have been a lot of Sundays that up on this screen has been some phrase about God keeping his promises. You know what God's doing through the book of Revelation? He's reminding you of that. And you know why he's reminding you of that and reminding me of that? Because sometimes the things in life jar us and they cause us to forget it or they cause us to doubt it. And so God is repeatedly coming again and again and again and again and saying, look, I keep my promises, but I do it in my time. What's an area of stress that you're facing right now? What promise of God speaks to that? Now, you've got to be really careful. God has not promised to give you your dream house. <clears throat> God has not promised that you never have financial anxiety. God has not promised that the test results are always going to come back the way you want them to. So we have to be really, really careful not holding God to a promise that he didn't make. 
But man, there are so many promises that God has made that do speak to so many situations we face. What is an area of stress you're facing this morning? What is a promise of God that speaks to that area? And then the third question is, if this is true, which it is, what can you tangibly and practically do to remind yourself daily of that promise? Because the issue is not that God hasn't promised it. The issue is that we often forget his promises because we stare at the size of our problem instead of the size of the promise. What are you going through? What, what, what promise can give you peace? And how in the world can you daily remind yourself of that promise so that you won't forget it? There's another interesting piece of architecture that reminds us uh, of another truth about God. Verse 14. And the wall had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Foundations. Man, you didn't know we were coming to an architecture class this morning. You know what, what, what does a foundation do? I feel like we all know that. This is a better question than what are these walls. What does a foundation do? Right? Yes, you're all right. A foundation supports something. A foundation is the thing that is laid first on which everything else is built and strongly rests upon. And what we're being reminded of by this, right, is what God's reminding us of is, hey, you know what? New Testament Christians, readers here, listeners today in this moment, man, the lives and the ministry of these disciples who literally saw Jesus and who were past the torch of Jesus' ministry, that is the foundation for what we experience today and our faith today, and that will be part of the foundation of the experience of what we'll experience in heaven. Our faith is built upon, flows out of, stems from the legacy, the obedience, the willingness to obey God, the willingness to invest in lives of people, the willingness to go through hardships that those disciples had. And choice by choice, obedient act by obedient act, person they interacted with laid a foundation for the relationship with Jesus that you and I have today. I think a lot of times we think we're, we're, we're just independent people who figured it out all by ourselves. Man, we're, our faith rests upon a foundation of godly men and godly women and godly people who have come before us, specifically being called out the disciples. He, I mean, you, if you've never read Acts, you need to read the book of Acts, how normal, ordinary people were used by God to change the world, to build a foundation for Christianity to sweep through the world. God works through people for the good of other people. God worked through the apostles and through the disciples, and he worked his, his faith intersected with their faithfulness so that they would lay a foundation so that lives of countless other people would be able to hear the gospel and understand the gospel and believe the gospel and respond to the gospel and one day be citizens of this new kingdom because God worked through their faithfulness. God worked through those people to be a foundation for the good of other people. And so the question for you and for me is this, as you think about your own story, and if you're a follower of Jesus, who's been a spiritual foundation for you in your walk with Jesus? 
Who's been a spiritual foundation for you in your walk with Jesus? Who's invested in you? Who's prayed for you? Who's been patient for you? Who's spoken truth to you? Who's always listened and always been honest? Who's that person? And if you can think of that person, if that person jumps to your brain, then what I'd challenge you to do is today, thank them. Thank them. No need to wait till anybody's funeral to come to say nice words about how they invested in your life. But we do that, and then we wish we hadn't. If there's somebody who's been the foundation of your spiritual walk, and if there's a way for you to thank them today, text, I mean, you can Facebook them if you want, right? Well, man, thank them. Thank them. Because I promise you the encouragement that they've given to you, you will be giving encouragement back to them. And secondly, who today are you being a spiritual foundation for? Who be, are you being a spiritual foundation for? Who, who are you walking alongside and pouring into that you're like, man, that person loves Jesus. They're on fire, but I'm a little further down the road. And so I'm going to just be a foundation to help them grow into the person that God is in the process of making them to be. And if you don't have that person then, man, you're not positioning yourself in the way that God perhaps wants to work through you in significant ways to work through you for the good of other people. Who's the person that's been the foundation for you? Thank them. And who's the person that you're being the foundation for? And final observation that we're going to pull, right? And I'm going to beat my 46 limit of typically preaching. This will be the, no, I won't. Okay, ready? <clears throat> and this has to do with a joke that we often hear, right? Uh, listen to one last description in verse 21. It says this. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, right? That is, if you've ever wondered... Why in the world you go to your crazy uncle's house and when you sit down at the table, your uncle said, ah, you came from church? Let me tell you a joke. St. Peter was in heaven at the pearly gates. Have you ever heard of the pearly gates? Yeah, these are the pearly gates, right? I'm like, where's, I, I did not, I actually realized that it all comes together when I was studying this. <laughs> I know I'm a really bad pastor, don't, don't, right? But pearly gates, right? Gates made of pearls, <clears throat> That's interesting. Why might that be? Here's a thought, and here's probably why. Of all the precious metals, I don't know if pearl is a metal, of all the precious substances, of all the nice precious things that God could have used to describe the per gates, he uses the concept of a pearl to describe that. And here's why it seems that is. Because pearls are the result of something painful that eventually becomes beautiful. Pearls, pearls, what will either literally or symbolically say, pearls are the result of something painful that eventually becomes beautiful. I did a little bit of marine biology for you all this week. I know. I'm a giving person, okay? Um, and, and here's what happens. Some of you may know this, but a pearl begins where there's this little oyster just hanging out, and he's doing his oyster thing. And into that oyster comes a little bit of sand. And that sand to the oyster is like a splinter to you and I. Or have you ever had something in your eye, like an eyelash or sawdust, and it is just the smallest thing that drives you crazy, and it 
irritates you and it's hard and it's painful. And that's, and many of you know this, it's not new. That's what happens to that piece of sand in the oyster. And so the oyster has this amazing ability that God's given to it to, to release this kind of gel-like smooth substance over that irritant. And so the sand is irritating, it's bothering it. I don't want the sand here. I wish I didn't have this here. I don't like the sand. It's, oh, it's not good. And so it releases this little gel-like substance that covers that teeny tiny piece of sand. And day after day, period of time after period of time, it continues to release this substance over that irritating thing. And after enough layers of that gel-like substance have been covered that thing no longer what is there or what exists is that irritant but instead what exists is this beautiful pearl the beauty of something that came about through irritation and pain and discomfort but in the end there was beauty the last observation is this and I'll invite the worship team to come up here God will ultimately bring beauty on the other side of pain. God will ultimately bring beauty on the other side of pain. God doesn't always bring promised beauty now, but what God does promise is, man, when you as a citizen of the kingdom of God, as a person of God in the city of God, walk into that place, whether literally or symbolically or metaphorically, it will, there will be this reminder that, man, you are experiencing nothing but beauty now. And that all the pain and discomfort you experienced in your past has been redeemed. And this is the reality in which you live. And for some of you this morning to describe what you may be going through as a speck of sand would, would so discredit the pain and the hardship you're facing. And man, we as a church, we're, we're, man, we're, we're walk with you, we grieve with you. And maybe this morning for some of you who are facing something so irritating and so discomfort and so unpleasant and so hard that you just can't shake that is just there, maybe the only reason you came to church this morning is for God to tell you just, just hold on. Trust me. And don't forget the end of the story. And sometimes the end of the story is the only thing we have to take a step into the moment in our story. And for some of you, man, keep walking. Keep walking. Because the hope is, and the promises, and the reality is, that God will ultimately bring beauty on the other side of every pain we've ever experienced. And that's the hope of heaven. And that's the hope of heaven. And next week, we're going to see amazing realities, right? They'll continue to unpack what that beauty and what that hope looks like when it's fulfilled. And so, man, if you're around, I'd love for you to come back as we understand that together. But now, what we're going to do is we're going to affirm the hope of heaven. We're gonna, I'm going to invite you to stand, and together we're going to sing a song as a body that, that, that affirms what heaven will be like, what we experience. We're going to sing it with anticipation. We're going to sing it with confidence, um, and we'll remind ourselves of this and remind each other of this. And so let me pray, and then we'll sing together. Father, thank you that you give us reminders of your faithfulness. Thank you that you give us reminders that you keep your promises. Thank you for hope. Thank you, Father, that you're a God of redemption. 
I pray this morning for people who are going through difficulties, Father, that you in a, in a unique and powerful way will just give them the confidence that you haven't forgotten them, you know what they're going through, and you're working in their story even when they don't see it. And Father, for the rest of us who were experiencing your blessings, may we not be arrogant about that, may we be grateful. May we thank you for your goodness, and may we together as one body, Father, sing these words as we anticipate and look forward to the hope that is yet to come. Amen.